Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. I'm going to cover three chapters, or two and a half chapters actually, in the book of Genesis today. And what I want to do is give you an overview of chapter 23, chapter 24, and chapter 25. I'm going to mention some of the things that happen in those chapters to familiarize yourself with what we are preaching on today. And then I want to steer you to the main point of that chapter because I, I, I'm reasonably sure that it's easy to miss the main point. We get distracted by some other details that are in there and we miss what the author is trying to tell us. Chapter 23, chapter 24, and chapter 25. I'm going to start with chapter 25 because I don't have to do this in any particular order. And it's only the first part of that chapter. It's not all of the chapter. And the reason I'm starting with chapter 25 is because in, in this little part here, uh, there's really not a lot for personal application. So I just want to deal with this and get it out of the way. I would hate to end my sermon on this because it, it kind of bottoms out. So this is a short account of Abraham getting remarried to uh, Keturah. Sarah has died. And they give an account also in this chapter of the death of Abraham and how he passes his assets off to Isaac, who is the only rightful heir. The children of Abraham and Keturah are listed here, but they are listed and separated from Isaac as to heirship. That's one of the purposes of this, is to demonstrate how even though Abraham had more children, they had nothing to do with being heirs to the promise. That was a clear delineation, an intentional delineation by the author. Also, the lineage of Ishmael is briefly mentioned to show how he also being an offspring of Abraham has nothing to do with the inheritance, but also that God, true to his word, blessed all nations through Abraham. So Ishmael and his people were blessed by God, though they didn't end up being godly and righteous people. Nevertheless, God was true to his word. It merely demonstrates God's faithfulness to his promise, even when we're not faithful to him. Chapter 25, which I call Part B, which goes on after this, we will deal with next week. There's too much there for me to include it today. So now I'm going to move to chapter 23. And most people will read the 23rd chapter of Genesis and they'll focus on Sarah's death. This must be a very important piece of information for the author to include this. Well, obviously, we want to know how, uh, you know, what happens to Sarah. It's logical to include this. It's uh, also, in this chapter, it's probably the most emotional part. Poor Sarah. After all she's been through, and now her life comes to an end. 
And Abraham, uh, out of deep respect to her, desires to purchase a piece of property so he can have a proper burial place for Sarah because they're, they're, they're kind of nomadic. They have uh, wandering rights in the land, but they really don't have anything to truly title and deed to call their own. So Abraham figures it's not a, an adequate tribute to his wife to bury her in somebody else's land. He says, I, I want to own the property. Now, if we back away from the details of this chapter, which I have just shared a little bit of it, and we take a broader look at the entire narrative of Abraham, there's a different picture that emerges out of the 24th chapter than what we see by studying the details. In the life of Abraham, we see the sovereign hand of God gradually moving Abraham in a position closer to realizing the secure promise for his heirs. You know, at the beginning, Abraham was offered riches uh, because he was a conquering hero. You remember that story? And he refused the riches. He could, have, he could have taken the riches. He could have taken control of the land. After all, he defeated all the kings. He was the top dog. He could have had it at that time, but he didn't take it at that time. And then there's the part where Abraham is given wells by Abimelech, and that's just gradual part of Abraham realizing the possession of the promise bit by bit and piece by piece. And then Abimelech uh, goes even further and grants grants Abraham room to roam within the land wherever he desires. And at, at that point, Abraham settles down and calls this land his home. Th these are all little bits and pieces of bringing Abraham into possession of the promise. Now that Sarah's died, Abraham just simply wants to go a step further. Uh, other than these privileges that he has been given, he wants to own outright the property. He wants the title in his name. It will outlive him if he owns that land and passes it on to his heirs. So there's a, there's a cave called Machpelah, and he wants to buy that from a man named Ephron. Ephron had a piece of property, and down at the tail end of the piece of property was a cave, Machpelah, and Abraham says, I would like to buy that from you. They could slice that off without interfering with the contiguous land that Ephron owned. So it was just a logical thing as far as Abraham was concerned. And Abraham was in good relationships with the Hittites. And uh, he just made a request, go talk to Ephron and see if he'll sell that land to me. And Ephron comes back and everybody respects Abraham. And he says, oh, my, he says, I'll give you the land. And Abraham says, no, I won't let you give me that land. I want to buy it. So for 400 uh, shekels of silver, he buys the land, which by translation just means he paid a pretty price for it. Nothing too good for Sarah. And having paid a handsome price for this land, he now has it by t title and deed. And the Hittites are standing there as the transaction is made, so they are witnesses to Abraham owns this land. Unquestionably, it's his. And so this narrative is carefully tracing the way in which the land incrementally is coming into Abraham's possession. If you look back on what has happened along the way and what has happened today, bit by bit and piece by piece, God is fulfilling his promise. 
Now, we sometimes expect God to fulfill his promises to us, to do his work for us in one miraculous swoop. Right now, suddenly, the whole thing, just pour it down. And the fact of the matter is, God historically has and continues to develop his promise in us, sometimes piece by piece and bit by bit. And I can see that in my life. I can see how over the years he has worked things out to where as time goes by, all the pieces suddenly begin to come together. But it took years of bringing these pieces together to see the fulfilled promise of God. You got to keep that in mind because when we're so tempted to think God hasn't done anything, God's not listening to me, God's not fulfilling his promise, keep in mind that God might be moving at a snail's pace, almost an indiscernible pace, but he's working out his will in your behalf. He does work in incremental stages. And that tests my patience greatly. But I have to remember it's the way in which God chooses to work sometimes. So the main message of that 24th chapter is not really about Sarah as much as it is the way in which God works out his promise through Abraham, bit by bit, piece by piece, and how he can and does that with us as well. Let's go to the main message of chapter 24, and I'll read a, a short passage for you to get you started. Abraham is now very old. And the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Now, we, we could appropriately refer to this chapter as the Rebecca narrative because it largely has to do with, of course, finding Rebecca as a wife for Isaac. There's some interesting little side notes that jump out at us. But after dealing with those side notes, we still need to determine what's the main message that the author wants us to know from this chapter. So let's look at the side notes because they're fun. And they're not... Uh, with, without value, they're just not the most important thing. And the first side note that we want to look at, I'm going to humorously just refer to this as the life application fallacy warning number one. How to find a wife. In other words, we're not going to study this and say, I know how to go about finding a wife. I've read it in the Bible. I, I say that humorously. But what I'm leading up to is oftentimes we read the Bible and we see things in there and we adopt that as a way we ought to do things. After all, it's biblical. And I know we can see the absurdity of that in this illustration, but I just wanted to play around with it a little bit to make the point. So with modern Christianity... We have many sincere, but unfortunately very careless and unskilled teachers pumping out a lot of theological garbage. It just happens in the church. Some of it comes from poorly trained ministers who stand behind the pulpit and they attempt to preach, but they don't 
study to show themselves approved and they have a, a certain degree of authority because they're standing up here and they're speaking to you and some people are just gullible enough to swallow everything that the preacher says. I see this all the time. And especially you want to know what really looks authoritative? A preacher that's on TV has ten times the authority in what he says of your local pastor. Something that puts our brain in park when we hear a preacher who's got a TV program and he makes a stupid statement and people come to church and say, I heard the most wonderful thing today. And people just hear things from a place of authority and they go away and they don't think it through and they just think somebody said so and isn't that smart and isn't that wonderful and sometimes no, it isn't smart, it isn't wonderful, it isn't true whatsoever. But people are gullible. You want to know how gullible people are? Some of you already know because you're connected with me on social media. But I got, I got a letter this week. And somebody out of Tulsa, Oklahoma had sent me an anointed handkerchief and a couple of pages uh, on this hanker, uh, on this, in this letter uh, showing that because this handkerchief was anointed that uh, people were going to get a better job, they were going to get healed, uh, they were going to get surprise money in the mail, they, they, everything that you could imagine good was going to happen because they got this anointed handkerchief. And it ended up not even being a handkerchief. It was just a piece of paper uh, with, with a, a border printed on it around. And that's supposed to be your make-believe handkerchief. Now, you're supposed to, this is on loan, you see. This piece of paper, uh, this piece of paper is on loan. I can't keep it. I've got to send it back. Of course, when you send it back, they get you on their mailing list. And the, the fact of the matter is, the only reason these people do this is they cannot afford to send this out unless there is a return on it. The only reason they do it is there is enough people who will do that that these people will scam them and get they will make money on this. That's what I say. People are gullible. Mo maybe we'd say most of the people that got that wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't do anything to it. But there's enough people. That's a good investment for these scam artists down there. It works for them. So I'm back to Back to my point here. We, we, have, we have trouble with having good, solid teachers within the walls of the church. Some comes from poorly trained ministers. Some comes from poorly trained Sunday school teachers. Some come from unmonitored small group Bible study leaders who lack expertise in teaching the Bible. And those things help perpetuate fallacies that do nothing but muddy the theological waters. So here we, in this, in this chapter, we get a glimpse of marriage in the ancient Near East. And as much as you all know, we're not supposed to take this narrative as a way to go about finding a wife. We'll move into a couple of subjects later on that probably do have some chance of people adopting this erroneously. So here's the marriage in the ancient Near East. The entire process is so foreign to our culture. Abraham wants Isaac, his son, to marry a woman from within the family. So he sends his servants back to his hometown. He came out of Ur of the Chaldees. He said, go back to the Ur of the Chaldees. Find somebody from my stock. Of course, this is protecting the airship, right? We don't want him marrying a Canaanite woman. We don't want to split the uh, uh, the the inheritance with Canaanites. So go back and find somebody from my family and find a wife and bring him to Isaac. First of all, in our culture, 
Abraham is butting in where he doesn't belong. Isaac, for crying out loud, is 37 years old. And Abraham is still taking control of who he's going to marry. So in his dying hours, his biggest fret is my son might marry wrongly. So he sends a servant, go back to my hometown, find a good wife, and bring her back for my son. The whole thing just, does, it just doesn't appeal to us. That's not the way we do things in our culture whatsoever. The servant does. He goes back. He, uh, in, in short, finds Rebecca and brings her back with him. And as they approach, Rebecca sees a man working in the field. She says, who's that? And the servant says, that's your husband-to-be. And Rebecca pulls the veil over her face, which would have been a customary thing, being betrothed, that she would hide her face until such a time as they were married. So she puts the veil over her face, coming to meet her husband. And I, I, Isaac finds his wife, receives her, takes her into her, his mother's tent, which is symbolic of now she is the matriarch. He is taking, she is taking his mother's place. This is also brutish by our standards. And Rebecca had very little to say in, in any of this. If you read the story, if you follow through, uh, she is basically picked out and assigned and told, uh, you, you're going to go marry a guy in another land. And the only, the only concession they made to Rebecca is the family said, well, can she stay for 10 more days? And they said, well, let's ask Rebecca if she wants to. They didn't ask her, do you want to go? You have no choice. You're going. It, you just want an extra 10 days. And Rebecca did not ask for the 10 days, so she left immediately. That's the only say-so she had in the whole thing. Obviously, we would not read the Bible. We would not read that story. We would not come away and say, this is the way God wants us to choose wives. We're all on board with that. But we come to another part of this that it's, it's maybe not quite so obvious. And that is life application fallacy warning number two. Patriarchy for today. You might be surprised, but some people think that patriarchy is an appropriate and legitimate biblical model for the modern day family. I, I know of a recent situation. It, it, it even shocks me. Of a pastor in the local area who had this concept of patriarchy. And he had a couple of sons that, as, it, as we come to find out, learning more about him, he had quite a bit of control over his family. Well, one of his sons, being of age, married, and the father be continued to keep a strong hand on the life and the affairs of his son and his new wife. The wife is not happy with this. And so, not comfortable with this arrangement at all, she begins to challenge her husband, why are you letting your father uh, exercise such an authority over you? Stand up for yourself. He, he's, this is your life. He can't call the shots for you. So, the, the father finds out that the wife is trying to break up this little monopoly, and he comes unglued. And he informs the daughter-in-law, I am the patriarch. I am 
the authority in this family. And you will do what I say, or else. And I guess she chose or else because she divorced the son. and She left. It's a sad ending. But where in the world does anybody get this idea, this concept, that because we read about patriarchy in the Bible, because we read about the cultural arrangements of that for the uh, ancient Jewish people, at least for the Jewish people, if not many other cultures, that there was one authority, and as long as that man was living, he could, he could pick your wife for you. He could, he could, whatever he said, that's the way it was, and go away and say, that's the way we ought to operate today. That's not one of the things that though we read it in the Bible, the way we ought to operate today. Culturally, it doesn't fit us, obviously, but even in, in a, uh, a Christian aspect, whenever, uh, whenever a man is to take a wife and the two shall become one, uh, uh, leave the father and the mother and go off and you start, I mean, you should always honor, but you're no longer under their direct authority to rule and reign over your life. I don't know that we would have any problem with that in people here. But just to make the point, it does happen sometimes. We read stuff like this and then we say, it's in the Bible. We ought to do this. So it's a fallacy. The next one, life application fallacy number three. How to hear from God. Now this is probably one where more of us get confused than the previous two. So whenever Abraham's servant goes to, Abraham, uh, goes to Abraham's homeland among his own people to find a wife for Isaac, he makes this bargain with the Lord. Even though he's not that intimately acquainted with the Lord, he's kind of learning from Abraham that you can talk to this being and, and he will interact with you. So... Uh, uh, the, the servant says, may it be, this is kind of his prayer, this is a negotiation with God, may it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll go water your camels. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now, the the operative word here is oracles. Oracles are a way of determining a clear black and white yes or no answer to a problem. E even though it, it may seem a bit suspicious and untrustworthy, nevertheless, to the person that is using the oracle, it's a clear yes or no. You, you set out, we always use the word fleece because we're very familiar with that situation. But you set out a scenario before the Lord. You say, if it goes this way, then I will take this to be a sign. Now, I would not embarrass you today by asking you to lift your hand, but, you know, the question I would put to you is how many times in your life have you tried to discern the leading of the Lord by putting out these signs and saying, when I go home and when I come into the house, if there is food cooking, and it's my favorite meal. I will know. And, you, you've, and if not, if there's nothing there, you know, so you, you put out these scenarios, these situations. Very good, sincere, honest Christians have resorted to that when they've had a hard time really understanding, what does God want me to do in my life? Oracles have, have been used from time to time from, by people because we, we read in the Bible somebody did it and it seemed to work for them. 
We have three notable occurrences of uh, oracular divination in Scripture. Uh, here, Abraham's servant, for one, uh, 1 Samuel 5, where the Philistines seek advice from their heathen priests how to get rid of the ark, because they have the ark, and they're breaking out in tumors. Things are not going well with them, and they go to the heathen priests and say, well, what's the best way to get rid of, of this? And uh, rats are running all over the place, and they're breaking out in tumors, and these heathen priests as well make five, uh, get some gold and fashion five golden tumors and five golden rats and put them on the ark and take them to the, the Israelites and give it to them. And then you'll know that if uh, all these symptoms and curses go away that you've done the right thing. So it was, it was an oracular uh, endeavor. And they, and they tried. That, those are the three main uh, examples of using oracles to determine what is the right and what is the wrong thing to do. And even though all three of these seemingly had success, it does not in any way infer we are supposed to adopt uh, oracular methods of hearing from God. Keep in mind, if you're going to take your example from this, you are taking your example from heathen, unspiritual people. That this was their customary means of hearing what they thought from their gods. And if, even if they were petitioning the God we know, they, God met them in their sincerity at the very best. But their actions are never intended to be taken as what we would call normative. It's, is it normative or, or is it informative? That's, that's the question. Or uh, should we take it as something that is descriptive or prescriptive? Normative, informative, descriptive, prescriptive. Is this something God has put in the Bible so that we should emulate or is it just a story there that we're supposed to learn something else from? So they had moderate success. Well, what about Gideon? Well, Gideon grew up in a family that had astropoles in the backyard and uh, uh, heathen statues in the living room. And that's all he knew about trying to hear from his God. I would not take Gideon as a spiritual example of who we ought to follow and who we ought to emulate. It's interesting to say the least. How oracular practices were used throughout the centuries. The ancients used to uh, throw the accused into a river. And if they survived, they must have been innocent. If they drowned, well, they must have been guilty. The gods saw to it. 17th and 18th century England, those accused being witches were dunked in the river by, by a, a, a large... Uh, crane and if, if you hit the water and you sank you were innocent but what good does it do if you sink if you floated you must be guilty because they reasoned that these people have rejected Jesus and they've rejected water baptism and by rejecting water baptism they become repellent to water therefore if you dump them in water and they float they must be guilty I know it all seems so absurd, but to these people, they were serious. And we unwittingly draw similar oracular conclusions as modern-day Christians when, let's say, we deal with sick people. Sometimes we assume that those who are not healed are somehow not right with God. Well, if you had enough faith, you would be healed. 
There must be something in your life. Uh, kind of like Job's friends. There must be something in your life going on here. We draw these erroneous conclusions. And, and even especially so within the fringe of what we call the positive confession movement, which in their overly simplistic theology leads them to believe everyone should be healed. And if they could just find that sweet spot with God, that right relationship with God, they would never be sick or poor again. So we dabble in oracles and oracular speculation when we assume that tragedies and disasters that befall us are signs that God is judging us. Some popular television evangelists were quick to proclaim after 9-11, this is God's judgment on America. Really? So why did innocent godly people die if that was God's judgment? See, oracular is just too simplistic, oversimplistic, and too black and white. It doesn't answer the complexities of life's questions. Sometimes we associate, automatically associate material gain with God's blessings and poverty with his disfavor. We just make it too simple. Well, what about those who refuse to get medical attention for their children? And we, we, we read of those horrible stories sometimes. The children died because they wouldn't take them to see a doctor because they said God can heal them. And if he wants to heal them, he will. And if he doesn't want to heal them, he won't. And the poor children suffered for lack of medical attention. And then if they die, well, it must have been God's will. It just breaks my heart that people would take that kind of an approach. Well, those are things that we don't want to learn. <laughs> I'm glad we learned that we don't want to learn those things. We don't want to emulate them. But the main message of the chapter uh, all of these subpoints that we've talked about tend to overshadow and, dis and detract from the most important point of the Rebecca narrative. And that is, this is still about tracing the promise to Abraham to its fulfillment and observing all the barriers and all the difficulties that had to be navigated through in order to see the promise fulfilled. It's not enough. For Abraham to have an heir, that heir has to be his son. It couldn't be a servant, remember that? It's not enough to have an heir. No, the heir has to be your son. No, no, it's not enough to be your son. It's got to be your son by Sarah. No, no, it's not enough to be your son by Sarah. It has to be a son who survives to adulthood. No, it's not enough to have an adult son. It has to be a son that marries the right woman. And there's all of these pieces that fit into this. That it has to be just right. But God is superintending this, and it's going to be just right. He could marry a Canaanite and claim uh, to have complete ownership of the land. Everything had to, there's so many forks in the road as we're traveling down this. There's so many choices he could make that would be the wrong choice. And God is keeping him on the right path. God's promises, as we look at this, more often than not, this is one of the big things we learn from this, is we see that this is really tracing the fulfillment of the promise of God and how intricate it is in fulfilling that. But one of the big things we learn from this is God's promises, more often than not, require a great deal of investment on our part for them to come to pass. We might call it sweat equity. 
You need to put sweat equity into the fulfilling of God's promises. And I want to be cautious there because I'm not trying to tell you to take over for God. But I'm also trying to tell you if you're really interested in God fulfilling promises in your life, you cannot just sit down and say, I'm not going to do anything more. It's all in God's hands. He'll bring it to pass. No, God wants you involved in this. And all of these intricate decisions that have to you have to make and all of these these forks branching off from the path you're supposed to be on and it's mind-boggling and trying to figure out how do we find the will of God and I'm going to end my sermon on this little primer on the will of God many if not most people make discerning and following the will of God one of the most mysterious and difficult aspects of serving him and it simply doesn't have to be like that Rule number one, in finding and discerning and following the will of God, minimize all subjective methods of discerning God's will. Let me break that down for you. I was recently in a meeting, um, I was sitting on a, a board, and uh, the chairman of the board started off with a little devotion, and he said, how do you, how do you find the will of God? Just kind of wanted to loosen up. The, the meeting a little bit and I, I try not to say anything I, I get overbearing so easily so I, 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 I try really hard to just sit back and let people talk and they did they all contributed and one said well I read the Bible you know that that's one way to discern the will of God and some and all the answers were predictable for me I knew what most likely would come out somebody else said well I pray and, and ask God what I should do. And I, I hear from God in prayer. And uh, there was uh, uh, another couple of, co uh, of uh, contributions. And I think they mostly dovetailed with what had already been said. And I was determined I didn't really have to contribute. Didn't make any difference to me. And then uh, he called on me. He said, what do you have to say? I said, I don't have anything to say at all. He said, come on, you have something to say. Well, don't give me two chances. I said, you put me on the spot. Because I don't agree with any of this. <laughs> I said, I just soon would have remained silent. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, everything that everybody has listed is so subjective. I said, first of all, reading the Bible, it sounds like that ought to be objective, except you're going to find it hard put in there for the Bible to clearly say to you, thou shalt go for apply for a job at this company. It doesn't say those kind of things. It doesn't give us very specific messages. And so you can read the Bible, but it doesn't always apply specifically to what you're going through. Also in reading the Bible, there's always this problem of interpreting what it said. People can read the same passage and come away thinking it says five different things, and it doesn't say five different things. You read the Bible, but you interpret it the way you want to interpret it, and you go away saying, now I have an answer. So reading the Bible and prayer. What about prayer? We ought to all pray and God will reveal what he wants us uh, to do. He, he would reveal his will to us. Except for the fact that there are 12 million Mormons that each one has been challenged. If you will pray, God will show you which is the only true religion. And 12 million prayed and God told them it was Mormonism. Prayer is subjective. You hear what you want to hear in your prayers. You interpret what you want to interpret in the Bible. You know, you've got to get in something more. If you're going to really be interested in following the will of God and knowing the will of God, discerning the will of God, you can't just rely on subjective things. Well, what else is there? Well, you better start asking 
questions of objective people around you that can be trusted. Don't just keep get people who are yes people who coddle you and tell you everything you think is true and right and wise, but get people who are objective and have no uh, dog in the hunt and they're willing to speak truth to you. That's one way to overcome subjectivity that will cloud the will of God. Number two, rule number two, don't sweat the details. God's will is not as narrow and limited in scope as we often like to believe it is. God is quite often not as concerned with which job you pick or which college you go to or which house or which car you buy as he is if you earnestly are making the best choice you know how to make while honoring him with your daily walk. So you young people here, if you are sweating the details and you're saying, I want to be in God's will, I don't want to be disappointed, there's 7 billion people in this world, and in that 7 billion there's one person somewhere he wants me to marry, and I have to find them somehow. That's really not true. God wants you to marry a godly person. And there might be 100,000 godly people out there that would be a good mate for you. And when you have convinced yourself there's only one, and you better find them, you're going to be so, you're going to go crazy trying to find the will of God. But you have to make good godly choices. First of all, let's start off. If they don't love God with all their heart, soul, and mind like you do, they're off the list. You've already list, you've already limited, eliminated at least half the world's population, if not more. Don't sweat the details. I know we pray about God, which job? And if God gives you a definite answer, like you got a letter in the mail from him, you know exactly what to do. But for those of you who don't get letters in the mail from God, you're still trying to figure out what is God trying to tell me? What should I do? And often what we do is we, we, we look at this retrospectively. We, we make a decision, we go with it, and then we have trouble, and we say, well, I must have made the wrong decision. Are you kidding me? You think there's some decision in your life that's not going to have any struggles, any trials, that if you'd have followed God and done something else, everything would have been perfect and rosy in your life? Are you kidding me? And how many of you does God really clearly speak to you and give you undebatable, undeniable evidence of what he wants? How many of you get a message written in the plaster of your wall at home? How many of you get a phone call from God? How many of you get a literal voice coming out of heaven saying, this is what, most of you don't. You're trying your best to follow God. And all he wants is you to make the best, wisest choice in view of trying to please him. He'll see you through the rest of it. He'll guide you through it. If if it ends up being something that's causing you a lot of anxiety, God's going to teach you something. But it's not, well, you sure made the wrong choice. You should have prayed harder. You should have, should have studied. You, none of that. You, you can't get so bogged down in that. Walk with the Lord. Live for the Lord. Honor him in everything you do. Ask for wisdom and make the best choice you know how to make. And realize no choice you ever make is going to be trouble free. It just isn't. And that's rule number three that I've kind of blended over before I got to introduce it. Honor God in your life and just keep going. Make the right moral choice when it's needed. When there's a moral component to it, it's a no-brainer. 
but keep going and make the wisest choice you can with God's help. God can and does open and close doors to get you where he wants you. You don't have to know ahead of time where he's taking you before you can make a choice. As long as you live to honor him, he will help get you there. Now, following God and living by his will in your life is not as hopeless and difficult as oftentimes we make it. And you can't second-guess yourself by saying, well, I guess I should have chosen the other thing. Well, how would you have ever known at that time? Hindsight's always different. But how do you know how the other one would have turned out? You don't. Where you are today, because you have sincerely tried to follow God and sincerely tried to do the right thing, where you are today, God is with you. And he's going to see you through. Now, if you got yourself in this predicament because you made a bunch of, bunch of bad choices, you've got some fences to mend. You've got some repenting to do. And all of that I derive out of this chapter of the will of God being developed in Abraham and all of the things that have to come together just right. And God can bring those things together. And even when we make wrong decisions, like Isaac made, like Abraham made, even, that, even when that happens, and I told you in a sermon before, he allows us to do that. He allows us to make a few wrong decisions, and he gets us back on the right path. It's all a part of learning in life what it means to love him and trust him and serve him. Would you bow your heads?